I would say I used to think, and this is just ego pride. Hey, when I get up to preach, this is going to be so memorable. Like people will be talking about it all week. They'll remember it 20 years from now, that sort of thing. And I realize both from listening to others and myself in experiencing different churches that where I preached at is like people tend to forget everything you said. <laughs> and, and instead of like the sermon as this super memorable, I don't know, like having an energy drink or like all excited and it, but it has, it's, it doesn't sort of last. It sort of fizzles out it is the idea of like, every time I preach, if I'm faithfully preaching God's word, I'm feeding God's people. And so, you know, I don't remember the meals that my mother fed me as a kid, but she fed me and I grew and I grew and I grew and the same sort of thing. Like, so it just takes a lot of pressure off that. Like I got to make sure, you know, this, this uh, point is alliterative. So they'll remember it or, or this visual, you know, makes sense when I raise my hand. And instead I'm, I'm more like, I am going to faithfully feed you a meal and it might be a steak today, <laughs> or, or it might be you know some beans. Um, but you're gonna you're gonna grow uh, if I'm faithful to just expositing God's word. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective podcast. My name is Mike Neglia, and this is episode 232. The voice that you just heard is the voice of our guest for this week. I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Douglas O'Donnell. We speak about his upcoming book, co-written with Leland Riken, called The Beauty and Power of Biblical Exposition, preaching literary artistry in the genres of the Bible. Uh, Douglas and I, we believe that instead of just acknowledging the various genres of scripture, uh, we should allow those genres to influence how that text is approached and communicated. Uh, we also speak about poetry, uh, the melodic line, and the benefits that come in the short and the long term through pastoral investment in the lives of the congregation. Uh, this is a great conversation. I know you're going to love it. Before we listen to it, let me just say, if you live in the Idaho region or the surrounding states, or if you want to take a mid-October vacation, you gotta come to our next in-person training event, which is taking place on the 14th and 15th of October in Calvary, Boise, in Boise, Idaho. We're gonna have lectures from the front, interactive panels, and most importantly, coaching from experienced preaching practitioners. You can find details at expositorscollective.com. And I'd love to see you and your team in Boise, October 14th and 15th. All right, here is Dr. Douglas O'Donnell on the beauty and power of biblical exposition. Well, hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. I'm thrilled to be spending time with Dr. Douglas O'Donnell. Hi, good morning. How are you doing? Great. Good morning, Mike. Good to see you. It's been a long time. It has. Yeah, you actually, you preached at my church many, many years ago, and it's great to be reacquainted for the sake of this podcast. Uh, you 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 preached on I remember it and I I didn't have to go like look it up just for the sake of small talk it was I think Matthew twenty seven the death of Christ and and it was so good it was so so good and I'm you're here because I really believe with all my heart that you are a good preacher and that you have good things to say to us who are learning to preach well thank you it's very kind so that's one of your sermons I want to now. <laughs> That was a sermon from a couple of years ago. Could you take us back as as far as you can remember to the very first sermon that you ever preached? Yeah, I so I became a Christian when I was 19. And then I quickly got into Bible school, went to Wheaton College to study the Bible. And I think the first public Christian talk I gave was this, the summer before I started at Wheaton. I was working in the physical plant. I told someone my testimony and they said, hey, you need to share your testimony at chapel. So it wasn't really a sermon, but that was my first public Christian talk. And the interesting thing was my wife, who's four years younger than me, was a high school student and she was in the room. Um, she was also working for the physical plant. 
and we didn't know each other then and wouldn't know each other for a couple of years. But she remembered my testimony and thought it was very powerful and related to her, her dad and his story a little bit. Now, that was my I, I wouldn't say that's my first sermon. That was just standing up, no notes, tell, telling my story. So my first I did a lot of sermons when I was part of college church in Wheaton, Kent Hughes, my the college group pastor was a guy named Randy Gruendike, still a great friend and mentor. Randy had us interns preach a lot to the college group. We also preached to the choir loft. <laughs> we, we did sermons on Thursday morning, and we would sort of preach to each other and any college student who wanted to come in here. Those were some of my first sermons. My first sermon as a pastor, though, is super memorable because it was the Sunday after 9-11. And what is really interesting is the text I picked. So this was the start of a church plant. The, the senior pastor, Ken Carr, he preached on the incarnation the first week, uh, Philippians 2, I believe he did. And then I thought, well, I'll preach on Revelation, the second coming of Christ, and kind of these bookends. Mm. So I preached Revelation 19, um, <laughs> of all things, um, Christ coming in judgment and uh, birds eating people's flesh and all this sort of stuff. And providentially, it was quite amazing because it was such a timely text for what we as a congregation, as a country, excuse me, were going through. And so <laughs> that was very memorable. Actually, in the, in the book on preaching that I, I just did, I, I actually detail um, parts of that sermon when I come to apocalyptic literature and how it can be used. So yeah, very memorable. I, <laughs> I know some people are like, I don't remember my first sermon, but I certainly remember my first sermon as a pastor. Yeah. Revelation 19. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned the book that you've just finished, and and I tell you, I haven't read it yet because it's not published yet. I, so yeah. <laughs> I, I want to. It's it is on my uh, to read list once it once it uh, comes out. But uh, yeah, I, we could talk about that later on. But do you want to just briefly uh, inform us about that? Yeah. So it's called the Beauty and Power of Biblical Exposition. Subtitle something like preaching the literary artistry and genres of the Bible. And I, it was Lee, Reich, Lee Reichen's idea to do it, a master of uh, literary analysis of the Bible and great promoter of how important it is for preachers to know the literary genres and the literary artistry in the Bible and be able to preach them. Yeah, he beats that drum a lot. He does, yeah. And so he reached out to me. He felt like I was someone who did that. <laughs> And it's it's written, I write the book, but I use all of Lee's material and sort of weave it all together uh, as we cover six different genres. Um, and yeah, so when, when I get to apocalyptic, I use that as an illustration of how apocalyptic, the value of apocalyptic literature, not to underestimate it and the relevance of it and things like that. Uh, but yeah, it comes out August, end of August, I believe. Yeah. Okay, so... So you speak about, or the, the title is The Beauty and the Power of Biblical Exposition. What made you choose the word beauty and power? I, I'm assuming that you're the one who named it. <laughs> or... Yeah, well, you know, with book titles, sometimes it goes round and round. And I don't always remember, you know, who <laughs> who's yeah. prayed and made it here or there. There are two words I like, <laughs> beauty and power, and power in the right context. I would say beauty... It relates to uh, the Bible as literary art. It is it is a beautiful book. Um, it's written simply at some points and complexly. Complexly, if that's a word, it's complex at other points. But there is an artistry to how it's all put together. And learning, or if you see that, you see the beauty uh, in Scripture. And then power. If we can handle the forms, the the types of literature correctly, as the Spirit wrote and intended. I think it it brings God's power. Uh, we often talk about you know bring the thunder <laughs> when you come when you preach. And uh, George Herbert has a, a poem called Prayer, and, and in there he uses the phrase reverse thunder. And I kind of think of this book is a like how how do you get that heat and light on a Sunday morning? That power. Well, the surge behind the storm comes in the study, and what you're doing with a particular text that's in front of you. And if you know how to properly handle a poem versus a parable versus visionary uh, literature, parables and narrative and so on. So that, that's why those two words were used, beauty and power. Yeah. And and then the main thrust of it isn't really 
expositing what beauty and power mean, but it, it largely is about, yeah, the, the genres of, yeah. of the Bible. Could we, could you briefly, I think I'm, I'm going to assume that most people listening to this show are, are aware of what a genre is, but maybe like why it should be important to Bible teachers and preachers. Yeah. Well, the book covers not every genre, but it, it it covered, it's a little bit longer than it was intended, but it's all such good material. So narrative, parable, epistle, poetry, proverbs, and then visionary uh, writing. So those are the six. You know, there's a, a quote by C.S. Lewis, Reflections in the Psalms. There, He says, there's a sense in which the Bible, since it is, after all, literature, and I think we sometimes forget that, cannot properly be read except as literature, and the different parts of it, so the different genres, different sorts of literature as they are. And so we have, um, let me look, look this up actually. I, I wanted to, to sort of, for that question, we in the introduction, we talk about seven shared convictions that, that Lee and I have. And I'll just read these quickly and you can ask a question about one if you want. But first, a literary approach to the Bible is essential to good preaching because, and this is what I've just said, but the Bible is literature. Yeah. The second thing is a literary approach to the Bible helps avoid reduc reductionistic preaching. So, so for example, you're preaching on Psalm 23 and you just take it as a, a, you know, here are three ideas from the Psalm instead of treating it like a poem. So if you're preaching through the whole canon of scripture, various parts of scripture, your, your preaching will have this richness to it because you're, you're handling different types of literature. Uh, third, and, and closely related to that idea, a literary approach to the Bible acknowledges that throughout the Bible, meaning is communicated through various forms. So meanings communicate through various forms. My dissertation is on the Canaanite woman in uh, Matthew's gospel, Matthew 15, 21, 28. And Matthew, does, in his literary artistry, he, he shows us the doctrine of faith through various characters and, and teachings of Jesus. So he doesn't come right out and define faith is. Uh, there's only one definition of faith in the whole Bible, Hebrews 11. So this is how the Bible often does it. Habakkuk's faith looks like this. It sounds like this. This woman's faith looks like this. It sounds like this. It acts like this. And so so that's that's what we mean there. The the the, the, the truth is communicated through a literary form, in that case, through, through a narrative. This is how this woman expresses great faith. Fourth, a literary approach to the Bible helps the preacher help his congregation to relive the text as fully as possible, so as to live out the message of the text. And so God has given us these various genres for reasons. One is to, to re-experience in community as a church, the ideas and expressions and emotions and applications of each unique text. And then fifth, a literary approach to the Bible offers an awareness and appreciation for the artistry of God's word. Sixth, literary approach to the Bible opens the entire canon of scripture, I was just talking about this, to exploration and exposition. And so sometimes Preachers just have a sort of a comfort spot. I'm going to preach usually the epistles. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And I'm going to stay with, with the epistles because I kind of know what to do with them. But if you if you understand poetry and then parables and, and proverbs, all these different kinds of genres, then, then it gives you this flexibility to cover so much more or all of what God has inspired. Um, and then seventh, the literary approach to the Bible adds freshness and enjoyment to our reading and preaching, along with an antidote to misinterpretation of God's word. I was just using this illustration yesterday when Jesus says, talking about prayer, ask, seek, ask, ask, seek, whatever it is, uh, and knock. Those are all synonymous. Um, so it's not a three-point sermon, it's a one-point sermon. <laughs> and so if you don't understand parallelisms in that, this case, uh, you'll wrongly apply God's word. So th those are our convictions, and, and that's kind of the, the purpose why we, we thought it was really important to, to write on this topic and for preachers to implement our suggestions. Yeah, I, I, I like that notion of yeah, the, the meaning comes through the form. We I spoke with Christy Anuabile recently. She, she came out with a book called Literarily, and it also is largely about the various literary um uh, genres within within the scripture and 
just acknowledging that not everything is the same as everything else that there's <laughs> ways. Yeah. I, Seems she probably, <laughs> yeah. She probably puts it a whole lot more eloquently than, than I just did, but that there's, there's rules for interpretation of obviously poetry that's different than how we interpret the epistles and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. But uh, yeah, having kind of an awareness of the terrain of how the Bible works a little bit uh, helps the preacher and then maybe more than that helps the congregation to understand how to handle God's word on their own. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So here's a question for you. What's your favorite genre? <laughs> yeah. Or is that like asking a parent who their favorite kid is? <laughs> I'll tell you who my favorite kid is too. Oh. No, <laughs> no uh, it's very, very biblical. It's patriarchal to have a favorite, right? Um, uh, yeah. Often. No, yeah. It, it should be the firstborn, but it often isn't. Isn't. That's, that's a, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, my favorite is, it's so funny because if you were to say like, what, what genres are you least familiar with going into writing this book? I would say this might sound strange epistles and uh, visionary literature. And so those two chapters, I felt like I learned a lot. So I was like so excited to write those, but those aren't my favorite. That's why I haven't preached a ton on those. The, the joke around me is like, you know, I preached through Colossians once and, and someone said, you know, oh, you, you know how to handle Paul? Are you going <laughs> to, you know what to do here at all? Because I focus so much on the gospels yeah. and, and wisdom literature. That's, that's my, yeah. my thing. You're a Matthew guy, aren't you? I'm a Matthew guy, but my answer to your question is, is poetry and, and why I would say, I mean, you're, you're in Cork, Ireland. My father's from Connemara, uh, North view. And, um, I would say Irish roots, like natural inclination. The Irish are poetic people. Um, that's what they're known for. So I've got some of that in my DNA. I, I've always liked poetry in English literature class and, and reading poetry my whole life, writing a little bit of poetry here and there. I also, I like the challenge. And especially I've done a lot of poetry in the wisdom literature because like a double challenge. But any poetry in the Bible, how do I understand the structure, what's going on here? The imagery might be very complex. And then the real challenge of like, how do I take that structure and imagery and the ideas that come through the imagery in a poem and make it a prose sermon on a poem? And so I, I love I love the challenge of that. I why poetry, I, I think maybe better than any genre, narrative would be up there, but human experience is expressed so well. So, I mean, think of the Psalms and think of the range of human emotions and experience. And I think as a preacher, one of my goals is I want to feel the text and I want others in the congregation to feel it. And Jonathan Edwards has this, this quote that I, I love as, as I think of preaching. His goal, and I'm paraphrasing here, was the, to raise his hearers' emotions as high as they could be raised, provided it was by God's truth. And I think poetry just naturally does that. Uh, as a way of just naturally connecting to the human heart, human emotion. And then I think this goes to sort of the rareness of it is it, it is a lost art in our culture to know how to read poetry, know how to write poetry, but I think especially how to, how to preach poetry well. And so I wanted to kind of be on the cutting edge of <laughs> how, yeah. do you, how do you do that well and hopefully be an example to, to some people how to do that well. All right. Yeah. And, and what, I, again, you're also kind of, again, I, I, I joke that you're a Matthew guy, but yeah, you've done a lot of work in the gospels as well. What are you able to, let's say, switch week to week, you know, between like the, the gospel genre and then poetry? I, I don't know how often you're, you're preaching these days. And then if it is bouncing from, from topic to topic, personally, I find the conclude like, cause you know, I preach through books of the Bible and the conclusion of one series, and then for me, the start of the next one is usually pretty chunky, you know, pretty clunky. I always have high hopes, so, you know, this time I'll do better. And then usually the first sermon of a new series, because it tends to be a whole different kind of literature, kind of takes a while to like get a feel for it, sadly. Yeah, that's good. I I'm preaching. Well, is it really? I don't think it's good at all. Okay. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I 
nowadays I'm preaching typically twice a month. I preach at Chapel at Crossway, and then I'm preaching at a, a church I helped plant a long time ago, once a month. So I'm preaching right now in both places. I'm preaching on parables. So I'm sticking with one particular genre, parables in the Gospels, which is where most of the parables are. And so once I get my head around, okay, I know I have a good sense at least how this genre is working. Then yeah, it's sort of you get, you get in a rhythm. But speaking of the Gospels, I think if you, I've preached all the way through Matthew and Mark. Uh, my goal by the time I die, Lord willing, is to preach through all four of the Gospels, every every passage. And the Gospels have almost every genre in it. And so if you're going to be a good Gospels preacher, you have to know how to do poetry, the Lord's Prayer, apocalyptic, the Olivet Discourse, you know, law, teachings, um, narrative, obviously, Proverbs. Jesus uses lots of Proverbs. So it, it really covers every genre in the Bible, in the Gospels. So it is a good way to sort of mix it up with your congregation because one day you're teaching a parable, the next day you're teaching a healing miracle or something, you know? So, yeah, but I, I totally get, like when I when I would do a preaching schedule, I would typically go, if possible, Old Testament, New Testament, and then mixing the genres. So if I was going through like a summer series on the Psalms, I would probably do narrative or epistle, you know, in the fall. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad that you sort of feel the same way, but not, not as much. So <laughs> you've got, more. Um, okay. Well then, so yeah. So kind of maybe, yeah. Parking the beauty and power of biblical exposition. I, I want to maybe speak about even your own kind of preaching career or, or, or ministry from those kind of early days of, your testimony in chapel and then preaching club or, or whatever it was called. Like what are the things over the years that like, are there moments of growth or, or progress or essentially like, are there things that you used to do in the pulpit and then you've stopped or, or vice versa? What have you intentionally started doing? Yeah, that's a great question. A few things come to mind. I think very early on when I was part of the preaching club and preaching in the college group, uh, some of my first sermons, I, I think it took me a while for me to find my own voice. And so back then I listened to a lot of John Piper and I read a lot of John Piper, just a brilliant preacher. I found myself starting to sound like John Piper, <laughs> you know, like a Southern accent. Where's where this coming from? Um, and so it took me a while to realize like, no, you don't, you don't have to be John Piper. You're not that emotional when you preach. You don't use that turn of phrase typically. You know, you don't have a Southern dialect, you know. So I felt like those early years, I was I was finding my own voice and being comfortable with my own voice. This is how I preach. This is how God has designed me to preach. And related to that, kind of finding my own style. Uh, and so I was influenced by a lot of different people, but the, the camp that would say, you know, you have to know manuscripts, you know, or one of my favorite preachers and a mentor at the time, Dave Helm, uh, we just do a post-it. <laughs> you stick a post-it on the pulpit and away he'd go. And and I think he's changed over time, but but that's what he did back then. And I, I just loved his sermons. And then I had Kent Hughes, who was a manuscript guy. And and as I sort of those sort of three voices, you know, nothing post-it or some sort of outline and, and full manuscript, I found myself trying to do the two others and not being myself with them. And I'm such a wordsmith, and that's part of who I am, that the manuscript naturally, it fit me. And so I always tell people, like, be, be yourself. But it took me a while to find my own style and what, I, what I'm good at. Now, related to that, I, I had an older man when I was at college church who would always say, get your eyes up, get your eyes up. And I think it took me, took me years to be a, a good manuscript reader. And a lot goes into that, like knowing it really well knowing where you're off, where you are, if you kind of get lost or something, but just also eye contact with people as you're preaching. That doesn't, if you're a manuscript preacher, that, that is a skill that takes years to, to do well. Um, so I really grew in that and, and sort of got my eyes up. That would be the change. And then another funny thing, I was just talking yesterday with a group of guys about this is um, when I first started preaching, it had to do, I think with nerves, but I would always have, I'd have my pop, my hand in my pocket. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's because my hand was cold. I was nervous. I don't think I was going, I was nervous, but that was my way of being a little nervous. Yeah. Um, and one of my mentors said to me, 
you know, hey, Doug, you're like a really good preacher, um, very natural there, but you got your hand in your pocket and it's like your other hand is like you're a machine gun, you're gunning us down. <laughs> like, and not because I'm moving, but just like the power of the words coming out. It's like you have no like drama to you. And yet it's like, hmm. but I realize that's not a positive thing. It's, it's um, so growing in gestures, I think has been a big thing. I, I was talking to a group of guys about preaching yesterday and I said, I'm preaching on Thursday. I want you to watch one of the things I'm going to do. I'm I'm talking about, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan, who, who is my neighbor. And Jesus, I'll do, I'll do this gesture. Jesus is going to erase the lines of this man's godly or his Jewish ghetto. And he's going to expand it to include the whole world. And I'll do something like this. And just how helpful that is for people to visualize something, to, to look at you and you're, you are visualizing your point. And then sometimes we'll do, you know, point one, point two, all that stuff. I did none of that mm. <laughs> when I was younger. And I do a lot, a lot more of, and I do very strategic things that people would think is just off the cuff, but it's, it's very strategic. I think well, on that, if I could interrupt, yeah. I remember sitting in the front row of Calvary Cork when you preached and you spoke about the death of Christ and how it looks like defeat. But then you said, but his arms were stretched up in a sign of victory. And you stuck your arms up. And again, I don't know how many years that was, but I remember that intentional gesture. And it, and it wasn't just, you weren't just flailing around randomly. It was like, a, it was thoughtful. And what you did with your arms it was connected with the words and the scripture, obviously, in a way that stuck in my mind. Yeah, no, that's helpful. And that, that illustration, actually, what I did, two things in, in that is I, I talked about a painting yeah. uh, in, in Dublin. It's in a church. I don't know if it's a painting or a stained glass window, but where Jesus is depicted like that. And so I both gave you a visual, like a painting, and, th- and I talked about it. And then then I gave you the visual of my hands. Um, yeah, it makes it, it makes it more memorable and really drills down the point. That's where I landed, you know, Jesus death in Matthew, this is what he's doing is shouts, you know, victory. Yeah. So good aside. I'm, uh, <laughs> I've got other thoughts. You yeah, want to people, hear people don't mind being interrupted. If it's me telling them how good they are at something, <laughs> usually interrupting is bad, but members your sermon actually related to that. That's, it's so surprising to me that you'd remember a sermon that that's great. I would say my philosophy of preaching has changed. I would say I used to think, and this is just ego pride. Hey, when I get up to preach, this is going to be so memorable. Like people will be talking about it all week. They'll remember 20 years from now, that sort of thing. And I realize both from listening to others and myself in experiencing different churches that where I preached at is like people tend to forget everything you said. <laughs> and and instead of like uh, the sermon as this super memorable, I don't know, like having an energy drink or like all excited and it, but it has, it's, it doesn't sort of last. It sort of fizzles out it is the idea of like, every time I preach, if I'm faithfully preaching God's word, I'm feeding God's people. And so, you know, I don't remember the meals that my mother fed me as a kid, but she fed me and I grew and I grew and I grew and the same sort of thing, like, so it just takes a lot of pressure off that, like, I got to make sure, you know, this this uh, point is alliterative so they'll remember it or, or this visual, you know, makes sense when I raise my hand. And instead, I'm, I'm more like I am going to faithfully feed you a meal and it might be a steak today <laughs> or, or it might be, you know, some beans. But you're going to you're going to grow uh, if I'm faithful to just expositing God's word. So I think my philosophy has, has changed in, in that way. I think I've also, the more I've grown and the more I've seen how people respond to sermons, I use a lot more autobiography. And I talk about this in the book when it comes to Paul uses a lot of autobiography. And I, I think we don't often do that in preaching. Well, my favorite book, I, or I usually say is my favorite book, is Augustine's Confessions. It's an autobiography. It's super relatable, uh, both to, oh, yeah, that sin. I did that sin, too. Or, or praying to God and you hear his actual voice. Autobiography can be, you know lifting yourself up as the hero or something like that. But if you put autobiography and vulnerability and you relate it well to the text, I think people need to know that their pastor is processing like what he's, 
what he's preaching to you, or he's experienced, you know, suffering himself or, or whatever. So I've really grown. I, I did my master's thesis on, on John Donne as a preacher. And back in those days, it was like a sin to use autobiography because um, it was just like promoting yourself. Yeah. And still in, I'm in the reform world. There's still that sort of attitude. Like, oh, is this about you? But I'm like, read Paul, like read Paul's sermons. He, he shares about himself quite a bit. <laughs> and so I've gotten way more open to like, how can I weave this in? Not every sermon, but, you know, from time to time, uh, my own experience of, of the text. And I'll, I'll say maybe one more thing, and I, I could go on, I think, on this question. I really like it, is I, I think I have grown a lot as an exegete. And a lot of that has to do with getting a PhD in the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm not saying, oh, everyone who's around and get a PhD. But what the PhD did to me for me was I had a hand in very tight, specific exegetical work to, to my supervisor, John Nolland. He's a Trinity College Bristol expert in the Gospels, Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Luke. He's written commentaries on. John was so thorough that I had I learned I learned it to be a better exegete through 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 doing it through him. <laughs> and so now when I get up to preach or when I'm in the study and I get up to preach, I sort of I have a picture of like John uh, looking down saying, did you get that right? And what what's helpful about that is I think we're pastors are typically the Bible experts in the room. And so it makes us sometimes lazy. We don't view like this is going to go to a supervisor who knows a lot more than me and he's going to mark it all up. Uh, he's going to say, you don't, you don't defend like what you're saying here. And so I just think all of us as pastors need to grow in becoming better exegetes, uh, whether you do it formally through some program or you're just, you're reading, you're reading stuff that is like, I just uh, bought uh, Sidney Gradonis's preaching Leviticus. Well, I don't plan on preaching Leviticus, but maybe in the next few years I'll, I'll preach Levi- or I'll, I'll, I'll read that book just because that's going to stretch me. Um, hermeneutically, like what do I do with Leviticus? And if you're not stretching yourself in those ways, you, you probably become weak, weaker and weaker <laughs> in exegesis. And so I feel like I've grown, I've developed in that area in the last few years. I'm, a, I'm tighter with what I, what I say and how I, how I say it. But I also try to be simpler and, and shorter with, with what I say. I don't need to explain everything, but I do need to explain it concisely and correctly. And yeah, with your let's say your current preaching, maybe not in the church plants, but in in at the Crossway Chapel, you're yeah. So you said that pastors in most of the rooms were the Bible guy in the room. We know more of Scripture than than most people in the room. Probably not when you <laughs> are at Crossway Publishing's chapel. Um, yeah. How do, how do you find what's it like to teach in a room full of people that? may know the Bible better than you. Yeah, I, it, it is, it's been the most intimidating uh, group to preach to for two reasons. One, the room is small, maybe like six people it can fit. Uh, we have a lot more employees, but the people who, who work in this building and, you know, what whatever percentage normally shows up. So that's, I would much rather preach to like in a church where it's all part of a, a worship service or a liturgy. And I'm just one thing and I'm sort of, I'm not just mm. a guest preacher, you know, or something like, or I'm not just the, the chapels about Doug preaching today. That's it. You know, maybe we do a song, maybe we do prayer. So the room and that, that component is not part of a worship service per se mm. is, is, is it just, a, it, it takes me a while to sort of adjust to it. And then, yeah, what you brought up, you have a lot of editors, you have people who look at words very carefully, and then you have people who know the Bible very well especially in my department, the Bible people. So yeah, it's, it's um, getting your exegesis, right? I mean, everyone's very generous, I would say. Sure. Uh, and also like being fresh. So I'm preaching, I'll be preaching this Sunday on another parable. So some of these parables are so familiar. I feel like if someone walks away or comes up to me afterwards and said, I never thought about that, then I'm like, okay, good. Like I, you're, you're learning. I learned by preaching it and, and you're learning some of those same things that I learned this, this week. I mean, if you study the Bible enough, you know, like there's so much <laughs> to learn. And so the, yeah, this group is different than, than preaching in any local church or preaching to teenagers or junior high or anything like that. So it's a, it's a different challenge. And I, I can like, let's say the parable of the good Samaritan, it's that one's fresh in my mind. In a normal congregation, I'd say, 
this, this, the guy's a Samaritan. Let me, let me explain like why that's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, with Crossway, I'll say something like, as you already know, like uh, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along. And then I'll give an illustration from scripture or something. So it's it, sort of short to the point. <laughs> I'm going to assume you know this, so I won't belabor it. Things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm curious about more than that, but I also realize that is so unique. You know, <laughs> most people listening to this are not speaking to a bunch of professional Bible editors. And so we'll, we'll park that and maybe we could continue that uh, offline or something. Well, I, yeah, I, I'm looking at the clock. I'd love to hear about the melodic line. Is there, is there time to talk about melodic line? Yeah. I can do it quickly. So yeah, I know that you're involved in yeah Proclamation Trust. Well, it's called Proclamation Trust over here, or Simeon Trust in in the U.S. And I've I've listened to a workshop that you've done on the melodic line. What what is that, and why does that matter? Yeah, well, and Proclamation Trust and Simeon Trust are different things, but Simeon Trust is based on Proclamation Trust, like what they started years ago. Dick Lucas. Oh, sorry, I didn't know. Oops. <laughs> That's all right. (laughs) Novice mistake. Uh, Yeah. So this is one of my favorite lessons to to teach for the Simeon Trust. And the melodic line is like in music, it's like a identifiable identifiable association of of different notes or pitches, you know, we normally call a a tune. So it's kind of the tune within the tune, this reoccurring thing that or notes that keep coming up. So I think like, for example, Gospel of Matthew, I think of it having three notes, maybe a fourth, and it all all culminates in the Great Commission. But all authority, so there's this note throughout Matthew's Gospels, played over and over, that Jesus is king. He he is is in charge. He he has all authority. And there's this theme of all nations. So the Gospels will be preached to all nations. But you see, even early on in the genealogy, uh, Matthew 2, the Magi, and then later, you know, the Centurion, chapter 8, chapter 15, the Canaanite woman, these Gentiles, they're, they're little notes that are placed throughout all authority, all nations, all allegiance. That's like the third note. So if you're going to follow Jesus, there's lots of commands, unique, sermon on the mount, but also in the Great Commission, you know, that we're to teach people all of Jesus' commandments. And so there's allegiance to Jesus as, as Lord. And so the melodic line is a way of putting, how does it all, how does this, this book of the Bible, how does it all relate to one another? And if I had to summarize it using just a few notes or a, a phrase, what what would it be? So similar to how a a sermon should have a a thesis statement or a a big idea, is it kind of saying that books themselves have a big idea? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of, of putting it. Yep. And how does one find it? Do you have to buy a commentary and it tells you? Or or probably you just read it over and over and over again and then take notice of those. Yeah, that, that's the first thing I always, I always say. Well, the first thing I say is, yeah, buy my commentary and I'll, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, yeah, the first thing is read and reread. I think we, we undervalue how important it is just to actually read the text. Or I do a lot of listening now. Like I'll listen to the whole hmm. gospel. Old Matthew, if I'm preaching on that, it doesn't take very long, and um, I'm getting it sort of in my head. Another thing I say is like look or listen for the the tone of the book. So Galatians has this kind of <laughs> in your face right from the start, and it stays that way for the most part. Uh, the Song of Songs has a very different tone, doesn't it? Like it's it's a celebration. Uh, almost everything fits into that sort of tone. If there's a purpose statement, there are only a few. <laughs> um, yeah. John, first John, John, John one. maybe one other. Yeah, that's that's your melodic line. He's telling you sort of what, what the melodic line. So if, if there's a purpose statement, take it. Identifying like the macro structure. Um, so Genesis has this macro structure of these are the generations of, these are the generations of. That tells you sort of, okay, this is an important thing, how he's divided it. And then once you understand that macro structure, when you come to a certain part of it, so you realize the last generation that is mentioned is these are the generations of Jacob, but then you got all these chapters on Joseph. And so understanding that macro structure says the story of Joseph actually has, has something to do, a lot to do with, with Jacob. And so what does it have, like, what does, what happened in Joseph's story relate to the promises given to Jacob and his offspring? And so, you sort of see how the plot fits together if you understand 
how, how things are structured. So finding a structure, if there is a, a macro structure, uh, and a lot of books do have do have that. These next two are like, these always work. <laughs> like look at the top and the tail, especially in epistles, top and tail. Mm. So what? how does Paul, for example, start his epistle? How does he end it? Is he giving us some of the notes of the melodic line there? Typically he is, but a lot of other books um, do that do that same thing. And so Romans, for example, uh, Romans 1 uses this phrase, the obedience of faith. Well, it pops up again in Romans 16. So, so what does faith and obedience, if those are two different things or if they're related, what does that phrase mean? And is it part of his melodic line? And then sort of staying in Romans, like is there a repeated phrase or phrases, words, keywords, righteousness, justification, anything like that, that is repeated over and over again? And then the final thing is like, what's, what's unique about this book? So like with Matthew starts with genealogy, that's, that's unique. Sermon on the Mount, that's not anywhere else. Luke's got Sermon on the Plain, but it's different. Uh, there's certain parables only in, in Matthew. Mountains is a big theme that's repeated, key places in mountains. There are certain words that are really important to Matthew that are repeated over and over. Uh, Lord, worship, little faith. It's used only four times in the Bible, three times in Matthew. Hmm. Church. Hmm. Um, and then the Great Commission is, is unique. And so you're trying to put all those things together. So those, those are like the, the tips for how to find it. You gather all that information together and you're, you're likely to find, oh, you know, he's always talking about this theme and this theme and this theme. And then see how they, they all relate to one another. And then maybe like, what's the practical value of that? You know, why, why do you look for that? I think if we don't know what the entire book is about, we're, we're probably going to miss the, the meaning of a specific text. I'll give you a quick example. We often read the Sermon on the Mount, like these are ethics from the great ethicist, and they are. But the Sermon on the Mount begins with Jesus going up on a mountain, sitting, a position of authority, and speaking just like Moses, <laughs> uh, with greater authority than Moses. And then the people at the end of the sermon say, you know, you speak with great authority, not like our the scribes. And so this theme of authority is throughout the Sermon on the Mount, but you might you might miss it if you miss those bookends and you miss what Jesus says at the very end of the gospel. So to understand any specific text, even in like, what is Jesus saying at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, he's saying he's the he's the judge on judgment day. You're standing before him. That's a lot of authority, <laughs> but we, we tend not to hit on that theme too much. But if we knew the melodic line, then we'd know, oh, all, all authority is like, it's going to be a theme that comes up all the time in Matthew. And then another thing is when we understand the melodic line, we can understand each passage better. And, and, and this relates to what I just said, and, and understand how it relates to the whole theme of the book. Another thing is our our sermons, our people, excuse me, will will rarely remember individual sermons if we're preaching like, through a big book like Romans or a, it's not a big book, but it might be a, a long series. But if we keep coming back to the melodic line in our sermons from time to time, people will leave knowing, oh yeah, the book of Romans is about this. Like I can kind of summarize it mm. in, in one word, and whether you've done like a 10 week series or a hundred week series on Romans. And then it, and we just, we did talk about this. Like it, it is teaching your people how to read the Bible for themselves. Mm. And, and that there's, it's not that hard to find something like a melodic line. If you do these, these tips I just gave, you're going to find, and it, it just gets you in the text too. Like you started out saying, you know, you read and you reread. I really feel like trying to find a melodic line just gets people in the Bible. Even when we might disagree about what the melodic line is, we've all got this sort of wealth of knowledge. I've been reading <laughs> through Romans over and over and over again. And so it, it helps people to get in the Bible, but also helps people read the Bible properly. Yeah, well, with that, thanks, thanks for that. In in all of our two hundred and twenty eight episodes thus far, we haven't had the melodic line come up yet. So, thank you for filling in that gap. Of, yeah, uh, this segment has been sponsored by the Simeon Trust, uh, <laughs> not Proclamation Trust, different organization. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let's put uh, any credit for this. Uh, yeah. Um, so in our remaining few moments, 
You mentioned that you had Kent Hughes as a pastor and as a mentor. I also know that you have co-written a a book with him that I've that I've read that I really enjoyed called The Pastor's Book. At this show, we focus on preaching, but we know that pastoral ministry is so much more than preaching. And that book focuses on on that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that book or what was you think the most important chapter? in that book, speaking about just like the ongoing pastoral ministry outside of the pulpit. Yeah, I've got the book so I can see what's in it, but <laughs> it is, it's, a, it's a decent sized book, a comprehensive and practical guide to pastoral ministry. Now it's not completely comprehensive because there's mm. other things I would have done, but uh, yeah, I, I think the most foundational, I wrote three of the chapters and then I was the contributing editor and Kent Hughes did most, most of the other, other work and I edited the whole thing in the end. I think the first chapter, I wrote it, so I'm plugging myself here, but um, Sunday worship, I think, is the most foundational. And it's it's first for a reason, kind of gets you into the book. But also, if you read anything, you know, read read that one. And then the other things are just helpful, like probably for the time you might be going through. Let's say you're a young pastor, you've never done a funeral. Well, there's a whole chapter on a funeral or baptism or communion. And then there's there's things on different pastoral duties, you know, hospital visitation. What do you, what do, you do when you get there? Um, counseling, these these sort of things, um, and then I, I think the the part I really love is the parts of worship. So we do a chapter on public prayer, historic Christian creeds, hymns and songs, baptism, communion. So it's a great great resource that Kent and I did years ago, and I especially we, we actually designed it for, or we were thinking, you know, if you if you're I'm a Presbyterian, we have a lot of. That's okay. Uh, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, if, if you're in the Presbyterian world, there's a lot of resources you can go to like for public prayers or something. But we were thinking of sort of the, the younger generation who don't have any of that sort of tradition. And so they're, they're like, okay, I got to do my first wedding. Like I don't have a manual for my denomination. So how do I do this? And so that, that it was geared, geared for that crowd um, in a lot of ways. But I still, I still use it, you know, like <laughs> do a funeral recently and I, yeah, what did I say? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I use it. I actually, it's not here at my office because it's at my house because I, I brought it home to reference something recently. So I, I love it. I endorse it. And there'll be a link in the show notes. I think, again, the people who listen to this show are like, probably like me, obsessed with preaching, but we just need to realize Preaching is important. Yes, it is. And it's one of many important things God's asking uh, his leaders in the church to do. Last question. How are you currently trying to improve? I'll actually say something related to, to the pastor's book and, and something that I do think this answer is the, how do you improve too, is now I'm not pastoring a local congregation, but I still think this way is like, I need to be in relationship with the people I'm preaching to. Um, and so there's going to be one-offs at a different church, but like I'm now preaching at a church that I planted years ago. I know half of these people and I'm preaching monthly there. So I'm getting to know them. And just that relational aspect is so important of how you improve as a preacher. If people don't like you, they're not going to listen to you. And so I feel like growing as a Christian, being a more godly man, these sort of things really being relatable in those sort of ways really matter. It's ways I'm trying to improve in my Christian walk. My, my Christian walk so greatly affects how people listen to me. Other things, this is a new thing I've been doing is I've been recording on my phone. I read my sermon manuscript and then I listen. I've got a long commute now, 45 minutes. I listen to it over and over. And I find that so helpful because I'm, I'm getting it in my head. I'm not memorizing it, but I'm, I'm a lot more familiar now with the manuscript when I go up because I've listened to me preach it throughout the week. I also, I pray a lot more for my sermons than I ever have. And one specific thing I do. Again, I've got a manuscript, but I, I put my hands on each page and I pray that God would use these words. And then, and I'm also sort of like, it helped me remember these words. And you know, so I'm praying for myself and I'm praying for my people. And sometimes I'll come across, I'm, I'm going to do this application when I get here. I'm really praying for this person, you know, who just lost their loved one or whatever the situation or who's stuck in this, this sin. Um, I mentioned sort of clarity, simplicity. I think also, Preaching at, at chapel has helped me with just shortness, that be more concise. I have to preach like 20 minutes in chapel. So I usually do 35 minutes, but I can preach 20 minutes. Like I can shorten that same sermon. And so just art of, of doing that really well. I mentioned growing in Bible knowledge. I think that's so important. 
listening to other preachers preach texts. Sometimes when I'll do my little little workout, I'll about 15 minutes, 20 minutes, I'll listen to a sermon, you know, um, two days usually. And I, I love just listening to someone else. And it's a, to- a, a, a great variety. I might not even know the person, but it always like jogs things in my head and I'll just write it down. And so that's something in the last few years I've been doing. I've always believed in reading widely when I was young. I read, you know, a lot of the great books, a lot of the poems, but I, I'm now reading a lot in my job here at Crossway. I'm reading a lot of Crossway titles or listening to a lot of Crossway titles just to sort of know who are the authors. I work on the Bible side, not the book side, but, but who are we publishing? You know, what do they sound like? Who are they? And, and that just increases my knowledge of not only what's out there, but, but just, you know, for preaching is like, oh, that's a good illustration or, or I should quote that or something like that. And then this, I haven't done a ton of in my life, but I'm doing a lot more of it now is just reading books on preaching. So I just finished reading my friend Eric Redmond's book, Say It, uh, Celebrating Expository Preaching in the African-American Tradition. And so just growing in in my trade. <laughs> um, and I, I joined the Evangelical Homiletical Society because I want to I get better at preaching. And so those are just a few things that I've, I've been doing lately. Yeah, uh, I think I spoke to Jeffrey Arthurs recently, yeah. who I think started that organization, I think. So it all we're all connected. Well, I, I say we as if I'm part of it, but yeah, we are. Yeah. <laughs> you're, all, you're all connected. Well, that's that's great. I, I, I wish we had more time. Each of us are having another appointment that starts in about one minute. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, I, I, w- I wish I could hear more each of those things unpacked, especially I love placing the hands on the pages rather than even even the clump of pages, but each of them, that's a, I, I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to steal that one. Uh, well, for the listeners of this show, I hope that this episode and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. Thanks, Doug. It's been great. Thanks, Mike. God bless. All right. Well, thanks so much to Dr. O'Donnell. I really enjoyed a chance to getting reacquainted with you. And thank you so much for sharing from your immense uh, learning and letting us in on some of your private practices. So two invitations for the listener. Uh, You are invited to come to Idaho, October 14th and 15th. We want to invest in you. We want to help you grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. And then also to everyone who hasn't joined our Facebook private group yet, uh, search for Expositors Collective Christ-Centered Bible Expositors on Facebook. And there's a private group and we're waiting for you to join. Uh, We talk about the episodes. We geek out about sermon preparation and delivery. It's a fun online community, and there's room for you. All right, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast because next week we have Tim Chaddock speaking about reading, rhythms, and rules. I hope that this episode and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. 